Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Today's guest has an imagination that can create new endings, happier endings, funnier endings. He's a comedian, an actor, a screenwriter, and a podcast host. Welcome to the show, Johnny Spoiler. Johnny Spoiler in the house. (laughs) And uh, like you said, every good podcaster does, I did some internet stalking. Oh no, what'd you find out? There we go. Oh wait, wait, is there a hush order? Do I need to start paying up? (laughs) Well, I know the hashtags that you use a lot. Oh, dang. Hashtag research, I think, still has some value. There's some some good hashtags in play. Yeah, I was like, okay, maybe I should use podcast show every time. I see you use that one a lot. Oh, I almost just cursed. I don't know what the language rating is on your show, Better Call it's Daddy. It's but... baby. <laughs> I almost said hot damn. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, it is used a lot, but for some reason, it's a strange hashtag. It's a power hashtag because even though it's used a lot, it still will get you a lot of, it'll pull people in like a magnet. Unlike using podcaster or podcaster of Instagram or just podcasts in general. Ooh, I use those. Yeah, I use them too, but they're not as influential as podcast show. But I I discovered something else. Using it for my show on other platforms as well has brought some organic traction. So it's a very valuable uh, hashtag. I saw also you use a lot of horror yeah, I mean, that's my show's bread and butter. So I started paying attention to what the audience want. I mean, I, there was a show I developed. I liked it. But then there had to be a reason for people to tune in. <laughs> you know, So I found out about, you know, 70% of my audience, like they can, on any given week, can look to me to have a horror movie review. You know, I just discovered with my podcast that do the middle of the road, it can't be a movie that's so popular. Like there's going to be a thousand podcasts talking about it at the exact same time that a new release comes out. But it can't be so obscure that nobody can go download the movie or find it at their local library. You know what I mean? Like they they can't go on like an Indiana Jones style quest to find the topic. You know what I mean? That's too much. So I found this like perfect little niche for for my show and things to talk about. What's really interesting, and I've seen a lot of this lately, is that if you can find that perfect little niche, you don't necessarily have to do as much marketing, it seems. If you can find that niche and be the best in it, I'll take, I'll agree. I'll agree with you. And I'll take it one step further than that is doubling down on that is not just a niche, but answering, well, I guess it is a niche, but answering very specific things. Like if somebody hops on and you're answering a question about like, I just got to use what's going on with my show right now. Like if I answer the question about what is the best werewolf movie that has come out in like the last 20 years. And all I've said is best werewolf movie. Okay. Clickable. Let me see what the guy has to say, (laughs) you know? And then maybe I have something to watch. I mean, and also, I mean, again, with my fat bloated audience of just like binge watchers in the middle of the night, they're watching so many movies, myself included, that we get burnt and we're like, 
even though there's 200 channels and there's like you know 10 top subscribers where well, you got disney plus hulu hbo max and all the rest amazon netflix you still get this gluttonous obsession with like there's nothing here i've consumed what's left so then you kind of look to your peers and the experts that like oh yeah i forgot about that movie let me go let me go watch that you know there's a whole lingo around movie reviews and where yeah. to find the best reviews. I would love even your take on Rotten Tomatoes versus IMDb and all of that. <laughs> Do you know about, well, I mean, you have a media background, so I'm probably, you, you probably know about the Hush release, like, like collectively, like the industry will agree journalists or the websites, the bloggers, gosh, even me sometimes we're like, they're like, we're all going to agree that this movie is great when it comes out and we're going to agree to this n- number of days it's like an embargo right so we're going to agree to this number of days and like there's certain studios that i love a lot and like but i've been in the embargo process too and i and i know the golden ticket or the bread and butter for a site like rotten tomatoes is to have like wow almost like a priest and confessional relationship with the filmmakers a movie comes out and within 24 hours on the site it gets 100 percent critic score on audience score some of those metrics, we got to really open the Bible on that one. And, and you, know, you, know, you know what I mean? And see if, if it's blind faith that all these people suddenly like this movie in a very short amount of time, or if it's the greasy politics of like movies getting released and you don't want to believe that they're paying to have so many tomatoes in their basket, but there's definitely an agreement. Whether it's not monetary, there's definitely like, because all the websites need content as well, right? And it's kind of like, a give and take. And I guess the industry and the cottage industries of the bloggers for movies wouldn't exist if they didn't get along on some level. I actually looked too at just the range of what people make doing film reviews and blogging and stuff. I mean, there is a huge range there. (laughs) I won't say which studio because we still work with them on my show, but we were asked one time not to give a review. I said, well, hey, promote the movie. Cool. We're interested in this movie. Cool. We'll get to see it early. Cool. But then they're like, oh, but don't review it because we've heard your podcast and you're very blunt or honest. I was like, oh, yeah, we just literally tell you because we're industry people. And also we don't want like, oh, well, in the days of the video stores, you would walk in. You wouldn't go for I wouldn't go for the shelf of what's out here. I'd go to like the staff picks, the more nuanced selections. So, you know, there's this contention that like, oh, yeah, if you listen to John's show or watch John's show, he's going to tell you exactly what's on his mind about this movie at any given time. So maybe on the off chance that the coin flips the other way and he doesn't like a movie, we're not going to have him endorse a, a full review, but Hey, but tell your audience it's coming out and where they can get it. So I mean, at one time, I think I got really creative and I was like, okay, so we talked about this movie that came out from a big studio. It had big stars movies, trash. <laughs> and, then, and then, so like two weeks later, they're like I, in the staff pick section of my own show. I was like, Oh, by the way, I watched the movie recently. Here's what I think. And if you could, I mean, you could connect the dots if you wanted to, right? Like the audience knows because they listened three weeks ago, like when he was saying, hey, go watch this movie. But then three weeks later, it's like, by the way, guys, I had time to sit down and watch X movie. You know what I mean? That's awesome. I love that. So if they knew you well enough, they really know what you think. Yeah, that was really funny. But that also scared me too, because that means that they were listening. They were listening to the other reviews. You know what I mean? And so that's, you got to walk the line all the time. I don't know if it's like an industry person listening and and they're going to appreciate the jokes or like, you know, I had a potential sponsor that was movie related go, well, you kind of like, we're making fun of the other sponsor, John. And I was like, well, how well do you know my show? Like, I make a lot of jokes, man. I mean, like, I'm like, 
I was a comedian and like the podcast is like another outlet for that kind of gabbing. You know what I mean? So what am I supposed to do? You know, you also- seriously have done so much. Like I was looking at your LinkedIn. I'm like, okay, so you were a development assistant and then mm-hmm. you learned so much even in that role from the descriptions of everything that you've done. You've been a comedian, you've put together a book. Yeah. I would love to hear about some of that. For, I mean, take me to film school. I always wanted to experience film school. How'd you get there? Well, I always wanted to make movies. I mean, when I was like four years old, I used to run through the house with drawn pictures, right? So as I'm learning ABCs, I couldn't fully like describe what I wanted to see. So I was holding up pictures and like playing out the scenes of things that I was drawing, right? And then, I mean, this is pre-podcasting. It's like, this is like, I had my grandfather used to send me audio tapes, you know, cassette tapes, and then I would record messages back and send them off. So it's already getting trained, right? Media trained, right? So I used to tell stories in there. I used to make things up like a sequel to Rudolph, right? The Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? But maybe I was dyslexic because I, I always used to say nose red, his nose is red. I never actually said red nose, right? And he was always trying to correct me, but I got so excited with these little stories. I'm getting excited now, right? So sometimes my words blur together. I'm sorry, folks, that that happens. I get excited and I talk about things. but. So I went from there to just like, I was wanting to express myself, but there's not really an an appropriate way to do that when you're locked into like elementary school and their Band-Aid solution that they try to slap on every kid and everybody's got to be the same, just kind of like in the middle. And when you start to excel at things, like I was good at science and reading and math, you get isolated. Like they, they separate you from other kids. And I remember they were just starting to do like standardized testing when I was going through like grade school and middle school. So I wrote an essay and they're like, oh yeah, you're in the top 1% of the whole state who submitted this five paragraph essay and you're testing, you got an 800 score, which we thought was impossible, blah, blah, blah. And like, but they say all this in front of the other kids. So then like, then all of a sudden you're shuffled off to AB classes, right? And it's like, it's like the school is declaring that these five to 10 students over here are like the magna cum laude, like these are the top dogs and you guys are just average. So already it's like when they separate you from your friends in a, in a small town and you like a poor town, your friends will develop an attitude where they won't socialize with you. So now I'm over here in this little tiny group, like the popular kids who are playing football and doing sports and stuff like that. Like they like me telling jokes. I figured that out. I was like, oh, okay. Then I had this angle in here. I was playing sports too and like doing soccer, but that's all to impress my dad, right? Like I'm like, my dad's like this old school classic, like hardworking guy, doesn't say a lot. When you're a boy, like all you want to do is impress your dad it might be true for girls but I don't know how intense it is I mean obviously right I'm coming from this masculine gender perspective I mean I can learn from books the other side but only to a certain extent can I understand right so my experience is always trying to find ways to impress my dad who didn't say very much to me didn't communicate very much to me when I was younger so it's like how can I make my dad proud like does he want me to see me as like a wide receiver or a tackling line or does he want to see me play soccer you know like what what can I do there you know, so I pursued those things pretty intensely because I like instilled in me like this hard work that is like an unbendable stick or something like it, like my family, like, yeah, we have our problems. Like we have like a history of alcoholism and drug abuse, but then on the other side is this work ethic that doesn't bend for anything. And so I was learning how to do that and, and maybe impress my father figure. And then it was like trying to figure out how to like associate with other kids who didn't think like me or act like me. And so then I got on like uh Dare Kids Radio, you know, like little country radio. So again, so there's like a connection here, right? So wow. I'm, making, I'm making tapes with my grandfather. Then I'm on a, a radio program for kids, right? That's involved in the programs at the school. So then I was going to go back to school. And then the kids were suddenly talking to me because they're like, John, we heard you on the radio on Saturday morning. You were freaking funny, man. Like 
you're really funny. So they, I went from like nobody at the school talking to me because I was a smart kid who was weird and read books all day to like, oh, you're you're like really funny, man. Like, so 300 kids in the school suddenly know that like I'm the funniest kid in school, right? Nice. So it kind of changed the, changed the dynamic now, right? Definitely. And then I, ha- I had something there. I was like, I can't connect to people in like these regular normal situations for whatever reason. Maybe I have too much anxiety or I just, well, there's just some kind of basic disconnect here. I'm a little bit different from them, but like, where's the common ground? Oh, they like what I can put out in entertaining them in these little gags or whatever. So let's, ex- let's explore that, right? So once I got that taste, man, let me tell you, like ran with it, right? So, all in, like, baby. All in. So, you know, <laughs> like freshman in high school, I remember like almost getting into fights with some of the like the varsity football team members because like I'm dating the, the cheerleaders because not because I'm on the football team, because I I'd stopped doing that. It's because I'm like, I'm the mascot of the school now. I'm a big blue and yellow horse called the Bronx. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really? Yeah. So, so, so I'm the high school mascot, but I'm hanging out with the cheerleaders anyway. And then they're writing a playbook about me because I'm jumping on pogo stick and then jumping off of floats and like climbing radio towers at the football games. And then, you know, I remember after freshman year, I got pulled aside by the, like the athletic director, principal of the school, like, John, you know, we love what you did, but we got to talk to you. Can you know, come down to the office, whatever. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, well, it's not a typical meeting. It's not during a school day. Like we just got done with the pep rally. Like this is very odd. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they bring in like, you know, the guidance counselor. And I'm like, what, what, what am I here for? Then they pull out like a 10 page document and then they pull out the student handbook. And then they're saying like, your act is really funny, John. We don't know if it's appropriate for high school football, you know, or the home games, right. With your peers. And, and also you disrupted the school band. I was like, well, I was playing with the school band, obviously, you know, like put that suit on. I got to come to life. Cause my whole job, I mean, I got, I got a job there. I got to get the crowd rooting for the team, you know, and if the team's not playing well, I got to bring up that team spirit. You know what I'm saying? And like, at one point I thought the act was going well because I'd go out on the field and like imitate the cheerleader routines and do the kicks and the flips and all that stuff. It was bouncing off the, the floats that, cause those are cars technically, right? That was I mean, going like, too far. Yeah. Going too far because like the, what do they call that? What's the, the booster club, right? Decorates their cars with like floats and they build floats on these back of these boat trailers. And it's very elaborate. There's like it's a parade. Yeah. So, I mean, in theory, I guess I could have got my big horse head like run over, but I don't know. I mean, like at that time, stunt work and acting were the same thing. Later on, I would learn, oh no, this man or woman or them gets paid to do the stunt work and you can get paid to say the funny lines, but they don't have to be one and the same. At that time, it was like one and the same. And I just thought like, wow. So the coolest thing that's ever happened is the fact that my high school, not that I was in trouble for being like too crazy as a mascot, but the fact that they had like created a contract for future mascots. You know what I mean? Legend. That's <laughs> right? legacy. That's yeah, legacy right there. Right. That was my takeaway, that it was ridiculous. I don't know. I watched too many movies as a kid also. That's the other problem that I have. So I started to believe that the movie plots were real, right? Hmm. So I liked this girl from like second grade into like my sophomore year of high school. And then like I got my little heart broken and I was like, oh, it's a stage play. So then I was like, oh, I can write these things and I can change the ending. So I started writing scripts in high school. That was the next next time I got pulled into the office was they just instituted like inter- internet one, folks. If you're out there and you're like used to having Instagram on your phone, you got an iPhone, or you got the Samsung Galaxy and it folds up and it's got whatever. Back in the day, we had these computers. It was like Apple II and then whatever came after the Apple II, they'd put them in the classroom and the computer lab there. I mean, Google might've been around. I don't know, but there was like a little dog named Lycos. It was another thing called Metacrawler. A couple of other things that I don't remember. 
and they're like, go look something up. Okay, whatever. And I remember like writing a movie at that time and it was about, like a whole town filled with werewolves. <laughs> and so these kids go on a trip. I mean, I was using my own experience. You know, I, was, I wrote like the high school football team and whatever goes to this town. And of course there's a guy in there doing jokes, right? There's a guy like me, a kid like me, who's going to be the hero by the end. Don't tell anybody, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know, he's going to get the girl at the end and he's going to save the, the survivors who are fighting off these werewolves. I, the computer teacher, I don't know. I guess either I left the document open on the desktop. I mean, we're talking about like the very first American AOL, you know, American online, you know what I mean? So yeah. either the kids were reading it in the chat. So somehow evidence, the story got left behind when my computer lab course was done. And then I didn't get a call to the office this time. I got a call from my dad and my stepmom. They were already at the school waiting for me to come back from the other side of the campus at the computer lab. And they're like, the principal's like, this is great stuff. This is like Jerry Brockheimer, Don Simpson. This is like an action movie. But John, you're writing about your ninth grade classmates or 10th, no, maybe 10th grade. You're writing about like your your sophomore classmates going to a town in Montana, getting killed by werewolves. And there's a sex scene in here. So we need to talk about what's appropriate for high school computer lab. All right, man. Let's talk about what's appropriate for high So. These are not the typical things that a teenager rebels with. You know, you know, I mean, school policies are not the norm. You know, maybe getting caught with a beer or something is like more average, right? Oh my God. That's- Can you imagine if that would have been discovered today? That would have been like completely torn apart about appropriateness. Oh, what? Do you think it'd been worse? It'd have been maybe. like on Facebook and like uh I mean, like, is this a death threat or you know, is he gonna threaten violence? Or I just I just feel like everybody's oh, like you know, so on edge about everything yeah. these days. Like kids can't even like bring in cupcakes hmm. with swords on them. You know what? I do feel I I have <laughs> boys, I have small boys. I got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. I can't imagine going through puberty in public school now with everything that they would have to get through. And I'm kind of teaching them how to tone down their jokes because yeah, I mean, I know having lived it that I mean, if I was in their place, I'd be in so much trouble. <laughs> like not intentional, but so me exploring puberty when I was a kid, which was completely natural and nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Might have been. Yeah. I mean, what if they said like, oh, no, Johnny's a pervert because he's writing about werewolves and sex between his friends. And, you know, like I'm like, that's what all writers do. I mean, look, if you don't think Shakespeare wasn't trying to get some action by writing all his plays, I mean, let's tell the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and also like by now it should be demystified. Like totally. it's, it's part of experiencing the human condition. And if it's not explored, I don't know what to say. It, w- it would suck to think that we're headed into a more Gestapo era, if that's even possible. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so cool that that's what you were getting in trouble for. Episode's going to get suppressed now. because I. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so from high school, how did that evolve? Well, there was one hitch in the giddy up with, I mean, because I thought I would leave my little town. I would go to Hollywood. I'd start making movies. I'd come back to my little town conquering hero you know my own parade like i open a film production company in my hometown make movies my dad tried to kill himself shot himself in front of me no and uh i had to make the 911 call my initiation into manhood like i didn't get a bar mitzvah i grew up on a a reservation so i didn't get i didn't get the smoke ceremony it was like this my initiation i feel like was yeah that event and having to leave my home and then go tell my little brother down the street who's playing with his friends like hey dad shot he's at the hospital we're going up there and i mean and what's funny is like when i was in i mean i'm gonna flash forward only to quote somebody i met somebody in college and and he's he's thought you know based on your demeanor john and how well liked you are and how popular you are and the kind of stories that you tell i would think that you had like the best life two parents like you're from the suburbs in new hampshire and like everything's great 
your full college ride is paid for. I said, oh no, like a complete opposite. Like I shouldn't probably even get to college. Like statistically, I should probably like not have even made it out of my hometown. You know, like I'm on presidential dean's list or whatever for my grades. And like Cornell's like, come study astrophysics. I'm like, no, I want to make movies, but I'm in the behavior modification unit for kids that are in trouble. You know, like statistically people in my family should not get to college. They're in jail or dead. And the, the suicide was like a, like a generational thing. It's like everyone named John in the family for like the five generations before me had, had left this world the same way. No. Yeah. So then it happened to my dad. So then I started chronicling like an emotional, being a writer, I tried to put it into terms of like make-believe. How can I process this? I started to think that there was a living, breathing darkness attached to our family, like our bloodline, like either a family curse or something that hunted us down. And right when we were about to like succeed in life, it just like blew everything up. That's but scary. that was like, yeah, so that, but it's scary, but that was like, that was like the moment where like, you know, things, the dynamics started to change. It wasn't like I was trying to impress my dad anymore. Nothing like that was like, you are a man. What do you do with that? What do you do with it? What do you do? And where do you go? So, so I went like headlong into trying to make something out of what time I had, because it's suddenly not guaranteed. Right. Wow. I mean, this is a lesson you learn in your thirties. You don't learn this lesson usually when you're 14 right so 14 15 and then it's a small town so like everybody it's you can't hide it oh my I mean, god you know your dad's front page news and he's we're in a small town so he's like you know air vac to a what do they call that when the hospital i see you yeah i see you that's right intensive care you know what i mean like he has to be air vac somewhere because he's a gunshot victim and it's the town's hospital doesn't primary care physician isn't treating gunshots <laughs> you oh my know? god so yeah so that was like what shaped the next year at that school and like having to go in front of the same group of kids and like, you know, spending the summer at my friend's house. And I mean, I, I also felt bad for my dad. I mean, he had to come back to his life in that town and hold his head up and act like, you know, proceed forward and have a good life there. And I always felt like my dad's like the unofficial mayor of the town, right? Like everybody knows him. He's famous for his own antics, right? I mean, he's my predecessor. Some of the traits that make me like this extroverted introvert come from him. Interesting. But that's across the bear, man. I mean, like, you know, and uh, I don't usually tell that story, but I figured, oh, podcasts, that's where you bear your soul. Got to get those quotes. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for, um, for sharing that. Wow. Well, that, I didn't that, see that coming. That was a well, hiccup. That's the fuel. So that's in my gas tank from then until I get to college when I'm about 19 and I'm going to film school on my aunt's recommendation. She's an educator. Cool. So the other thing is like, being from a, I don't know what you call this family. Like my, my mom's been married like five times. My dad's been married four times. I got six siblings, lots of half brothers and sisters bounced around a lot. And then like, you know, partially raised by an aunt and uncle who are educators. He was a science teacher and she's like administrative educator, like principal art teacher, you know, recommended, Hey, here's an alternative college. If you don't want to go to traditional state university, there's an art school. And at the time it had, it had a lot of caveats, you know, go to Santa Monica, right. Get into student housing, which part of your grants will pay for and take out some student loans. And at the time, it sounded like a great idea to take out these government-backed student loans and these private student loans, which have like an astronomical interest rate of like a thousand percent. Cool. We're still paying for those. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, and hey, you know, my aunt and uncle are now suffering the brunt of one of those loans. I do feel guilty a little bit, but I also feel like karma's a bitch. (laughs) <laughs> you sent me down a road that financial ruin for the next 25 years of my life because at that time i mean who at 19 who understands 
what a student loan is. I don't know. I've many- heard good things about Santa Monica College, though. Oh, SMC? Yeah, I wasn't at SMC. I was at Art Institute, which is Art Institute Chicago is like the famous school that has like, yeah, you know, restored 200-year-old paintings and they have a massive museum. This was Art Institute Satellite School in Los Angeles, which was in Santa Monica. Okay. And what sucks about that is like their schools were all purchased by a conglomerate, right? Okay. That owns like a series of private schools. And my school is accredited and I got a bachelor's of arts and then I did UCLA extended for screenwriting. So at the time, it was a reputable school. Now it's a, a cautionary note and a, a bookmark, you know, because the school was like in that whole billion dollar lawsuit that the government waged against private colleges. Oh, like no. Art Institute, Art Institute was like number three on the list of executing extra student loans that nobody knew about and students that weren't really attending. But why do they have student loans? You know, it's bad, bad stuff. We were actually in LA at the same time. I bet we were. <laughs> like we probably were. I mean, I graduated from the Art Institute in 2006. And I was there at the end of like 2002 and was there. Yeah, I moved to LA like 2002, 2003. It's possible we bought coffee at the same Starbucks. <laughs> and what I used to funny? love to hang out in Santa Monica. What, what would be funny is if we found out we worked on something and we just happened, we like passed like ships in the night and didn't even, it's possible too. Who knows? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, because we have a lot in common. I don't know if Were you on J date? oh now we're wondering if we dated each other i hope it went well (laughs) i hope it went well i mean my name is written on the bathroom wall at my college so all good things all good things so if we dated i hope it went well i mean (laughs) i did hang out at the comedy store which you did attend and wow yeah what's funny about my experience with stand-up comedy is they used to think that i was somebody else like (gasps) because i look like belushi but sometimes they would confuse me for jack black sometimes other comedians. So half the time I would like stumble into comedy clubs drunk and take stage time from other established comedians, be funny as hell and then walk away. Nobody really knew who I was. I did go a couple of times as myself. Like there was one time I got this great idea of like driving. I was out of town, but then I, me and my buddy drove 200 miles back to the comedy store to do a show, blew the tires and got stuck in Redding, California, which is in the middle of nowhere, desert country, just waiting for coyotes to find out if they like your jokes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but, but Hey, that's what you got to do. I don't know if I was more well-known in comedy or like going to development meetings. That's where you really got to be funny. I think I sold a lot of other people's movies for them. Yeah, yeah. I read on your LinkedIn that even you were like a post-production supervisor ish and some of your clients were like Kenny G yeah, and Madonna. Yeah. So I needed to make a couple bucks because I remember in school when your bank account is showing you like, you're about to overdraw yourself for that that burrito from the, from, from the, from the roach coach. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You're like, well, you know, I ate today, but I'm not eating on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, but Hey, Monday full belly. All right. Um, It's not before bed. Yeah. I was taking like these EBK jobs, like video editing. And I love Walter Murch's book. Like, I think it's, I think it's called the eye of an editor or anyway, folks, if you're into filmmaking, look up Walter Murch because he's a great editor. I'm just talking to your audience. I don't know what to call them. The, the daddyites, what do you, what do we call them? The children? What do you call your yeah, audience? What do you call yours? The, the binge watchers? The uh, we, call them the, we call them the bingers now. The bingers. Yeah. Hashtag bingers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you need uh, to be on the binge factor. Do you know Tracy Hazard? Shout out Tracy Hazard. I'm going to interview We you. are aware of each other and I know some of her people. We haven't spoken yet, but All right, that's well. what I feel like. I feel like everybody is aware of me, but then it's like, they don't know what to do with my energy. Where, where to put me exactly, right? On stage. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully. 
Are we still doing origin stories? <laughs> like, yeah, like, I love the origin story. How much more are you willing to divulge? I, I would love to know what you did comedy about. Did you ever do any self-deprecating humor? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I got into, like, uh, but it was all it was all present. Like, what was hard for me was I couldn't always just tell stories naturally. I can now, but at that time, I was really looking for audience work. So I was really good at crowd work. And I really, like, if the audience threw something out at me, I could rattle off or do a sequence of sketches and stuff like that. And then like, it's really hard not to have like Robin Williams energy because you can't duplicate Robin Williams, but you can do whatever it is you're going to do. And he told me I was funny once. And like to hear that before he dies, what else, nothing else matters. Like put that on a resume. I'm done. <laughs> you know, Totally like, lead with that. That's amazing. Yeah. So I started doing better, like alternative comedy, like starting to make like little videos and I noticed like my charisma was translating on screen. And so then I was like going to auditions and trying to get into these shows and getting callbacks. And then maybe this, maybe that. And then talk about some of those experiences. That's fine. Oh, oh no, <laughs> no way. I had a chance to sleep with Carrie Fisher and I didn't. And I probably should have because she's gone now too. And that would have been also an interesting story. But then I would just kind of shell myself out. That's not really fair. She's a great writer though. So it would have been interesting to have hooked up with Carrie Fisher because she's a great writer. I can respect her for that you could have slept so. with her for that yeah yeah exactly like oh yeah bang all the writers <laughs> no actually it was just for her writing strengths yeah yeah exactly like just yeah there's actually a term and i don't even know there's like a term for if you're attracted to somebody's intellect i i, I don't remember the term i heard it again the other day but you know. emotional affair yeah exactly oh my god that's awesome okay so you went to film school what did you like about it what did you not like about it it was very like black and white and I didn't really like that like each teacher had an example of what they thought was a good movie you watched it you made a report about it a couple of classes you got to explore things you wanted to do and then I felt like we're wasting a lot of money and time to just learn about the movies that they like it was like half and half some of the teachers were people that had had opportunities and not made it and then some of the other ones were like working writers they were working on movies but not getting not earning a living so here they are right and that's fair I understand that like Many a times I had day jobs and was still working on the podcast or one of these things in California. Like I, you know, so I can't knock anybody for that. Like you're chopping fish heads in, during the day and then you're telling jokes at night or whatever, working on a little one act play with your buddies, whatever. Right. Or trying to shoot a short film. And serving um, it to you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's always, that's always tough too, because you're trying to convince these people that you go on an audition for that you're valuable and they can put dollar signs behind your name, but then they remember that you pumped their gas on you know, you know what I mean? On Pico Boulevard, you know? Some or, of those gas station pumpers were hot. Well, <laughs> yeah, I <guess> so. <laughs> so, I mean, I remember one of my lowest points was like, we were getting ready to graduate from our bachelor's program and two of my friends got writing jobs at CBS. They walked into my night job. And at that time I was like working at a Japanese mini mart, which I loved. I love Japanese culture. So it was like, actually like, it seemed like a 7-Eleven, but they would also serve sushi. But one of the most popular items was actually the tomato bisque soup of all things, which doesn't really match with sushi. But you had to make like three different kinds of soups every night. And it was really miserable, right? So you'd make a giant vat of tomato soup, a giant vat of like lobster bisque and something like chicken noodle because it's everybody's favorite, right? You got to have a, you got to have a couple standards, right? And I remember the machine broke. So I'm covered in tomato soup. I got to clean out two old canisters of the old soup. And I got to make sure I got the new soup on because they want a certain number of, you know, they got quotas, right? They got metrics. They get, they're like, you need to sell this many soups or what, you know, they know some, they know if you, something's gone wrong, if they haven't sold so many soups between, you know, 7 PM and I don't know, three in the morning. I don't know. I was on the graveyard shift because my whole theory was I would come in at seven 
nobody I cared about or no producers that I'm trying to like convince that I'm a talent would walk into this random mini mart. You know, it, I don't think it was on Pico. I think it was on Robertson of all places. If you know that notorious street, yeah. right? Venice and Robertson is the neighborhood, I think. And there was like a Bally's Total Fitness. And then if you walked further on, you could end up at Sony Studios. That was like my, that was my stomping ground. Yeah, I saw you worked in Marina Del Rey. Yeah, I'm schlepping at this mini mart. I mean, they literally just told everybody. We were just at a party like two days ago that they had got these writing internships or whatever they were. Or, or they're going to be writer's assistants or something on the They were going to, one was going into a writing room and one was going to work for a writer at CBS. Our graduating class, how many people were walking into movie jobs? Not many. And like, I just lost one of my gigs that I really liked because I thought they were going to promote me to like, you know, a real hot shot writer, you know? And then I found out we were having a baby. So it was like, everything was happening at once. Like I lost my job as a writer's assistant. The writer didn't tell Disney that I even existed, that I was the one fixing all the scripts. So promises out the window, right? Like gone. And then I found out, oh, by the way, you're having a baby. Well, great. Cause we can't pay our rent at our apartment. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the worst, it, it all, so it all, all this stuff came together and maybe I should explain. I'm also bipolar. So for me, like emotions are like really these intense, like giant tidal waves of just, I don't know what to, I don't know what to call it. Just emotions, tidal waves of emotions that crash really hard and you have to process them. They walk in. relate to all of that. Yeah. 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 So they walked in, right. As I'm dealing with this soup issue and their eyes just sunk because we just had our graduation ceremony. They just, they like, it was like, they instantly knew that I failed. And I instantly knew that they knew that I failed and that was yeah. it. Like, so they're going to leave and they're going to tell our 25 other friends, by the way, this is as far as John went with his film school education and his comedy club. He's making soup, you know, at Venice and Robertson, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and, and then, you know, pursuing a career of fewer, you know, future vagrancy with Frank who lives behind the, the mini Mart, right. And listening to his war stories from the 1980s. I just feel um, like that's so LA though. <laughs> Oh, it's very LA. It's, it's, it's weird. Like people who aren't there don't really understand the boilerplate of like, they are your friends, you socialize with them, but nobody can let anybody win. It's very strange. Like even I had friends that I worked with years later and I was the one bringing them to work and they still had that sabotage. We got to, we, we can't, we can't enjoy the work and we can't make a good product. We have to like be our for ourselves. Yeah. That yeah, is yeah. such a shame. There are so few that really give you a leg up in the industry. Well, see, that's the hardest lesson because here I am. Like I was coming, like I, before I got to LA, I thought everybody loved movies. And so having that kind of like rosy lens on my glasses and not, if I had realized before I got there that it was a business. And to be honest, I don't think my school taught us very well about like, you got to negotiate, navigate a real business here. And there's going to be agendas and egos and social decisions can influence the business and you know, if somebody doesn't like somebody, you could lose your entire movie. Or if the producer is dating an actress, you might have to rewrite your entire movie to suit that actor. And then if they break up, you're going to have to maybe fix it again. And it's going to suck because now we've, we've gone through 25 passes and it's, we don't know what this is, but it's under contract. So we got to make the movie anyway. That is so accurate. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I've already, I think I've told you like three hard lessons I've learned, but maybe, <laughs> but I, you know, that was a really big eye opener for me was nobody loves movies, John. Nobody, they don't love movies. It's just something that they sell. Everybody else in the country, they, everybody else loves movies. And it's maybe watching that rom-com because they want to get the person in the movie. And at that time, I mean, the most common romantic comedy was guy gets the girl, right? Guy, guy gets girl, guy loses the girl, guy gets girl back. That was the traditional rom-com. Now it's, 
whoever gets anybody. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? But at the time, it was the most traditional AB story. Romance comedy. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do with that information. So I had lost my jobs in the industry, wasn't really working, didn't really care to do the work because I had all these scripts of my own. Then I was like, well, if I could fix other people's movies or <laughs> win deals for all these other people, like, could I do it for myself? So then I started trying to pitch my own stuff, try to finance my things. I got close a couple of times. Talk um, to me about what that was like. We did a pilot for ABC or NBC Universal Adult Swim. They were interested because I had attached through working for one of the guys who was bringing those um, EBK deals, like the Maverick Records and the Madonna videos, like all that stuff. He was a producer and we started trying to sell things to like Cartoon Network. And I was like on his staff as his assistant because he, he had working with my wife at one point. But long story short, anyway, I met somebody through him and I met Larry Charles, who's like the other Larry. You hear a lot about Larry David, right? Because of Kirby Enthusiasm. But there's a director producer who was on Seinfeld, who's Larry Charles. I looked him up. I mean, I that's a whole, that I mean, that's a Hollywood him. name. Yeah, that's like yeah. a stage name. He has another name, but in the industry, yes. he's known as Larry Charles. On Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. I won't give out his surname. I know. I mean, I that I could say it to prove that I know him, but whatever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's searchable. He thought my script was funny. So he kind of became a mentor. And then then they pushed his kid. His son was going to become an actor. And so like they pushed his his kid into the into my pilot. Oh, wow. And then, then it became much, much more serious. Like we were raising money. And my friend was like financing through his parents who had like money from the nuclear industry and like it was all we were selling equity points in the show. We're like, if we, if we can't sell it as a TV show, we'll sell it as a movie. You'll get your money back. Da, 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 da. And we raised a certain amount of money. And then they're like NBC and Universal and Adult Swim. I don't exactly know which channel, but my associate producer who was working for NBC at the time came back to me and said, OK, they're looking for a show that could be made for fifty thousand dollars an episode. And I was like, we just made the pilot for fifty three five that we raised ourselves. So if it's just the three main actors and we don't have money for the sport cast, but the stories are centered around these three people anyway. It was called the Bobo and Skippy show. And I was Yeah, Bobo. I saw that. Oh, so cool. The whole concept so you were gonna is, be an actor is in that it. circus workers like went and helped like establish a town somewhere in Southern California, like where they can retire after they're working, right? Kind of thing. So everybody, most of the people you meet in that town will be a clown or a clown adjacent. So my character was the son of a famous clown who died tragically during one of their stage shows. Right. Mm. And so that's what the son is most known for is like having accidentally killed his father during one of their shows. Is any of this harkening to the reality origin story? I don't know. But so, so, so we make this show. Larry Charles is interesting in producing. He takes it around to his buddies. We get a quote from him for the DVD in the premiere party. His son's in it. He's producing it. I am told this and I can't verify this because this is again through like somebody who was working for me on the show, then went to a meeting and then also happened to work at the studio where he he was, he was getting ready to do that movie with Bill Maher called like Religious. And he, so he was working on all these other deals that he had. But my understanding is there was an offer to do six episodes of my show. I was going to stay in the cast. I don't know about if they were going to keep anybody else. Offer for six shows. It somehow was NBC and Adult Swim working together or something like that. Then there's a phone call in Larry Charles's office. It's about Larry Charles's fee on the stuff he's developing, my show included. Something doesn't go well on the phone call. We don't make the show conversation stops and suddenly this hot kid in town who was dressing as a clown and you know making this show no matter what like and it was like very difficult it's like we had like we had like actors revolting on day three it was a five-day shoot we had like actors angry on day three we had like the wrong street permitted on day four we're like trying to pull this together because we're like we have an opportunity here like people who have run television for 20 years they're like looking at us they don't look at anybody but they're they heard this idea they read the script 
for some reason, they're giving us two, five, five minutes, 10 minutes of their time. Oh my God, you must have been so excited too. Well, it would have been life-changing. So this is who I really am. I get these life-changing opportunities and then they don't, you know, I like, I'm right there, these near misses, right? So what happens a few months after this is there's a there's an offer to develop a vampire script that I wrote. I call it like the evil Ghostbusters. Because in this movie world, you don't get rid of the demons. Like you help the demons cover up their murders, right? That's getting shopped around. And then at one point they're talking like 30 million, 3 million to John. It gets produced. They're, we're going to have points in a sequel. And that again, falls apart. So while that's falling apart, I'm in the editing room with the clown show trying to see if that's going to like come back to life. And then we're like, we're over budget. So then I'm taking payroll out of these like CDs or whatever that my grandmother opened. For. I'm taking money. I'm just taking money out of the investments I have that just like, Hey, kids call us fun, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, oh like, my uh, gosh. yeah. Like us bonds, like whatever I had that had, was valued just to get, get the crew paid for that five days and like walk away. I kind of like go super internal on myself, like, and just feel like, wow, <laughs> like, I don't know the next move because I've had these opportunities and that they're not going to come as fast like this anymore. Then my friend's like, why don't you try making a podcast? And what is that? At the time, it was like five shows on a first iPod that ever came out, right? <laughs> right. It's even before video iPods. They don't even make the iPod anymore. They just announced they're not making iPods. Right. They're I think they're doing... discontinuing yeah. it. They're only doing iPhones. So yeah. So I started and like happy accident, people started listening. And then at first I was doing the interview style like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to knock it. It works wonders for many shows. But what I realized is like more people were just listening to me tell my stories and listen to my opinions about movies because movies to me were almost like a religion at this point. So like, and, and where's the filmmaker go if he can't make movies? He critiques other movies, I guess, you know, and like, and try not to fall into the dirty word of being a film, you know, critic. This is like 10 years later, many ups and downs, but the show still exists. I'm still making it. And then I made like, just like a, this kind of took my comedy personality and became Johnny spoiler on the podcast, which is like a hyper real version of myself. I mean, it's me, but it's not me. Right. You can probably get away with more jokes than I can get away with because it's just, it's just a show, right? That's why like, I had anxiety about talking to you today because I was like, how much of my real personality is going to slip through? How much am I going to hide behind in a joke? You and you haven't also really me... been on too many interview style podcasts no, where I mean, you've shared your story this way. No, because I'm very protective of my parents. Like I get along with them. Like I can forgive them for many things, but I still had the life that I had. And so they're probably going to have to hear about this for the rest of their lives, how I was shaped because they were part of that part of shaping me. Right. But I have a renewed appreciation for like a certain time in my life because there were times where they were taking care of me and like the challenges that I face as a, as a dad myself. Now I have a renewed respect for what they must've gone through while going through their own, their own problems. I'm like a record of the human condition. Like my, my artwork, if, it, if you can call it art or anything, satire, whatever you want to call it, is just observing why people do things and trying to understand why they're doing it and convey that information to other people that may understand, try to understand what they just saw. Both my parents were broken people. They had problems. I started even going further than that. I was looking into like the science and genetics. It's like, okay, short chromosome over here, the wrong amount of chromosomes over here. You're going to be loaded with depression from both sides. You're going to develop these other issues. You're going to look for oxytocin and serotonin, the things that like literally create happiness or the feeling of happiness in your brain. You're going to seek them out in other ways because they can't be produced in your, gen- in your DNA. Wow. Like that's intense stuff. But once you learn all this, you have an understanding for why they made these two people, right? Why mom and dad made the decisions that they did and like why you are what they created, you know? I have so much respect for you. I feel like you're so sweet in figuring all of that out even. 
and yeah. not being resentful. No, I'm not really resentful. I have very intense feelings. And like, so there's definitely like, I mean, I can have bipolar episodes that like they used to last for minutes or hours. Like they can last for days or weeks at a time. And like, I used to be pretty radical. Like I used to get on planes and like go away for like weeks at a time until it was over. And I'm like, well, that's pretty destructive and also affects my personal life. I can't really just like, I can't do that. I have days I'd like <laughs> to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> but it was like, wait, you just up and like left me with four kids for seven yeah. weeks. Um, <laughs> when we moved to Texas, I want a vacation for a month. Well, like, the, and, and my, and my place in the family is like to be like a resourceful, just like stone like a backbone or like, just like they, like a dependable, like rock. Like I notice my place, like if I get too emotional, they can't handle it and process it. Or like they misunderstand me and then there's arguments. And so I have to like, I guess, censor myself around my own, in, in my own family unit, because I don't know what ordinary is, but also I don't think, I mean, I looked up normalcy and there is no one, but like the presence of like trying to be normal when you like, I would love to just say everything that comes into my head, whether it's positive or negative. Me too. I, I've noticed something like, do you, do you know primal scream therapy? Oh, like, I would ever, love to do it. So th- this is incredible. It's basically like you use your, your full diaphragm and I have a little bit of diaphragm training. Like sometimes I'm talking loud and I'm not even people are like, why are you yelling? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just speaking because I got this training and I can't turn it off now. You have a resonant and- voice. Yeah. yeah, but I'm not like, I'm not like trying to yell at anybody. I'm just like, this is how I talk. You're going to have to watch those levels on the other end of this. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely hopefully, hopefully you have like some kind of audio master dubbing thing or something on here. So primal scream therapy, my understanding and the way I've participated in it, it's like you speak from everything that you have and you release everything that you have at that time. So if you go into the woods and you participate in this, this primal scream, it's like whatever is bottled up at that time gets released and the slate's clean and it starts all over. I tend to bottle so much and then it comes out in weird ways, like a satirical joke at the pharmacy counter because the line's taking too long and people don't, don't necessarily know what the commentary is about. So, and it's not really fair because it's almost like that's the wrong time. These might not be the people to lay it on, but your patience is gone. And also you feel better or I feel better having just released something because I can't hold it in. And so the release is actually what fixes you it's very therapeutic i don't know yeah it's it's therapeutic but i don't know what the science of this is this is just like things coping mechanisms that i figured out to make myself more functioning in a society you know that doesn't expect reactions from anybody you know like people that's a sad thing is like i feel like people can't be emotional units right now but i we stuff so much down yeah we really do yeah so do you go into the woods and scream yeah every once every once in a while yeah but i mean you can get away with the a half a primal scream, not a full primal scream, because it's not, I don't recommend it for your safety. You can go underwater, right? I wonder if that's why but, I had screaming contests as a kid. Underwater? Oh, I did underwater. I did above water yeah. too. Because <laughs> you could just mermaid the whole situation and go underwater and, you know, yell to Poseidon and see if he answers, you know, <laughs> you know. You can yell into pillows too. That also helps. Yeah. That's reserved for a different activity. There's a reason <laughs> to be yelling into pillow. Okay. So how did you discover hilarious. this yelling thing? Good question. Probably reading. I mean, like I used to read, this is dumb. This doesn't make me sound very uncool. I used to read the book, like, like the dictionary for fun, like every day, just read the dictionary. I mean, and I, I can't knock reading. I mean, like it, it's in different forms. Now people are listening to books. People read them books on audible or whatever. Better call daddy sponsored by audible. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love your ads. They're so good. You do get into this like 
whole radio personality thing. Oh, though. that's funny. When somebody tells me they didn't like an ad read, I'll make sure to say like, well, guess what? Okay. Better call daddy said, I got the voice for it. You do. <laughs> you really do. And you worked in radio too. Yeah, a little bit. Did you read the news in the weather? Yeah. I love it. So did I. What station? Well, it was 1380 AM country, Parker, Arizona. <laughs> With the amazing man, Keith was the, his first name. I don't remember his last name, but he owns two stations. I think he sold the one in my hometown. That's a regret. I would have loved to have gone back there and like, if I had stayed, he probably would have let me take the radio station. I would have been the guy that inherited it, but somebody else inherited the station. But they brought me on for an interview like a few years ago, like, oh, Johnny left town and made good. Let's, let's bring him back on the station. I know that you said you wanted to keep your show independent. Let's talk about that. What does independent mean? I guess independent means you're in creative control. You're also in control of the ads. You don't have to move your RSS feed. For folks that don't podcast, RSS feed is like basically like the lifeblood of your show and it lives somewhere online. And it's all the technical garbage that actually is your show. It's everything you said. It's everything you've written down. And it pings all these things that other people play the podcast on, like iTunes, Spotify, all the apps. And it's kind of like the language that makes your podcast work. And it's a real pain if somebody asks you to move that for the sake of a contract or tells you because you have an exclusive contract, you can't go on other podcasts. You can't go on like social audio apps and like talk. Like you're like, you're not in a lot of interviews. And like, yeah, I mean, with, with one contract, I wasn't allowed to like moonlight on anybody else's like podcasts like at all. Oh, wow. Or, or partake in like now there's social audio, right? So there's these yep. apps like Stereo.com and et cetera, et cetera, that like do like these, like Wisdom is another one. Like I'm a mentor on there, but previously I was under contract, so I couldn't do any shows on Wisdom, but now I can if I want to, right? Because, you know, stuff like that's in the way. I, like I, independent means like I want to be like a independent film company. Like I want to be able to make creative decisions, but also have enough money coming in that I don't burn through my run rate and I can't afford operations on the is a show I don't want, like guessing whether the, you're going to continue to be here for another 10 years. Right. But having to go full corporate is, I mean, I guess in our background, we understand it because you have to agree to certain things. And then, so it has to be, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. Whatever you're giving up has to be worth what you're getting in return, but that's not always equal. And then you can get burned hard <laughs> as, a, as a creator. You can get burned very hard on contracts. I shouldn't talk about this, but I'm in a dispute, a dispute right now with a previous sponsor and it's not looking good. And so to have that kind of over your head while you're trying to create new content is kind of a bummer. Cause I do think there's a lot of politics involved. I'm thinking that like if podcasts don't fit the agenda of like a Spotify and iTunes or the big three or four or whatever, then those corporate sponsors are pulling away from certain creators. If they're too open-minded, like if they have too many opinions or they're very progressive in a certain way and it doesn't fit their agenda, then, that's off. I also have the speculation. I, I'm a logistics guy. So I love having data behind it. And I want to find the data. But first, if I have a question then I want to go find the like scientific method, like how can I find the information that supports what I'm thinking? I mean, my theory, right? Because my current theory is that I feel like some corporate sponsors intend to cut their run with you early on purpose, judging on how much traffic they're going to generate versus how many customers they're going to generate versus they never intend. Like let's say, let's say that their contract says they bought 20 ads, right? They know because they're a bigger conglomerate that you don't have the wherewithal as a content creator to get into a legal battle to fight for those 20 ads. They can stop at 13 and they know, especially we're talking about day jobs. They know if Johnny's chopping heads at a seafood market and he's got bills to pay and kids to take care of, he's not going to go then argue for the seven ads that they didn't pay him for. 
he'll walk away with the 13 because it's they just have the power to do that. So I feel like there's still this Wild West element with corporations and podcasters and regulating the industry. I still feel like there's this wild element to all of it. And, How has uh, it changed since 2013 when you began? I felt like they were honestly more respectful for podcasters five years ago than they are now. Maybe they're doing that thing that like you, even the television and film industry used to do where you're expendable. We can find, you know, a hundred more Johns with brown hair and, you know, overweight posture and beards, right? If we, if we want, if we want to, they're here. You've been to the audition. You've seen the cattle call, you, you know, have the beard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, so. And the man bun. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I feel like maybe that's what it is, that there's just so many podcasts. They'll just move on to another show. Have there been moments where you're like, I love what I'm doing. I'm, I know I'm getting better at this. Like, this is what I want to be doing. Like those moments where you're just like, this is so right. In a weird way, everything that I learned to do, and you said like I had such a varied background, it prepared me to be a podcaster. And I think I'm supposed to podcast. And I think people are receptive to me as a podcaster. Now there is a little bit of contention. I still have a little bit of love hate with it. And the fact that like, I feel pigeonholed now, like, like being typecast in a sitcom is like the best friend. Instead of that, it's John, you're a great podcaster, but we don't want you on the Food Network show judging cuisine, you know, like, because there's other things that I can do, like you mentioned before, like I, I could do a sitcom or I could be in a movie, right? Or I could go back and do some comedy shows, but they really love this little podcast. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And, and they, they go to John for that and like, maybe that's, that's it. But a lot of things have lined me up to be a podcaster. And right now, I, like, I, like I said, I'm going through a downturn. I just had a contract dispute. And I'm like, I'm fighting tooth and nail to do my show, but I feel like that's what I should be doing. And like nothing else, nothing else is good enough. And like, since I haven't done anything else for, I've been doing this full time since the pandemic started. And before that it was part-time. And I, and when that happened, I just said, okay, let's, let's see all in. What, it, what is it going to be like? And to have such longevity, most podcasts are done within two weeks, two months of starting, you know, we have like almost 500 episodes, you know, it's a big show. And so I feel like I don't want to have an ego and say like I'm owed a certain amount of respect, but I'm tired of being mistreated by the industry. That's for sure. I only care about the audience. So if I have sponsors, they, I would love to think again, this is, this is total enthusiasm or fantasy, right? Cause I had said earlier, I thought everybody loved movies, right? I would hope that every sponsor comes to a podcast because they actually like the podcast. I know that's not necessarily true, but I would like that to be the reality because then the sponsor won't get angry if they don't generate a certain amount of customers or leads or whatever their intention is with the ad. They would be happy that they supported a show and the show got to live longer by their participation as a sponsor. Because they believe in you and they believe in the show. Wouldn't that be right. nice? Yeah. Like, why aren't they listening? Like, that's what bothers me most. Like with public relations agencies, like we want to book our blah, 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 who just wrote a book on your show. And I'm like, wait, 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 my show. Did you listen to it? Like, how often do I have a guest on my show? Once a year, twice a year? Like, there has to be a reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a panel show. You have to be invited to part participate on the panel. I mean, that just shows you, like, the PR firms are just playing a numbers game with all these with all the podcasters. They're just trying to book as many as they can, you know, for their client. Yeah, what don't people realize about starting a show? Okay, that's a great question. What new podcasters don't realize, and I see this in the message board all the time, and it breaks my heart, and I want to help them desperately is, you know, they think they record two episodes and they're going to get a thousand people listening, thousand downloads, and then they give up. They shouldn't look at numbers for the first year at all, because it's just going to make them obsessed. And they shouldn't be thinking about monetization really honestly till like the second or third year. 
They need to make great content and they need to have a reason to make the content. Like they just don't start a podcast because it's like learning to play guitar. Like right now there's a cultural phenomenon of like start a YouTube channel, start an Instagram, become a social influencer. You got to have a reason and you got to be making things that people are responding to. They're not going to respond to it if you don't have a reason to make it. Those things. Don't, Don't run analytics. Don't monetize. Make good content and have a reason to make it. It sounds like you've been having a reason since around four years old. Yeah, but maybe that was, I don't know. Well, I guess if you believe in programming or not, like whether we're here to do a certain thing or if it's just luck. I mean, do luck you feel is like it's your soul's calling? Okay, now we're going to get into a belief structure a little bit. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I was, I'm definitely a messenger and somebody put me here for that. I don't know exactly whose blueprint it is, but when I get off the path, terrible things happen. When I stay on it and focus, good things happen. But are there days you still want to quit? Every day. Yeah. We're human. We're humans. <laughs> like we, we fear things. We get tired. We get angry. Right. We have other interests. Yeah. That's part of being human. What happened after the accident? Yeah. My dad survived. He moved back to that town. And like I said, he had to deal with, I mean, sure. We haven't really discussed what it felt for him coming back to work and living in the town right after it happened. My parents were divorced when I was a baby. So yeah, my younger brother went to live with my mom before I did. The accident kind of changed the nature of our relationship because there was this instilled thing in me to fight and never give up. And then so if your dad shoots himself, that's like, is that giving up or what is that? It takes many years to understand it's not giving up. Because I have depression and severe mania from my mom's side. It's like when I see other people that are sick or having trouble, it's like I, I want them to understand that those feelings pass. They are like waves. You're in the ocean. If you, the best way to understand it is, they think they're going to tread water for only so long and then they're going to get out of the water and go home or whatever, like a day at the beach. What I feel and try to express to them is, let's use a different metaphor. You're never leaving the ocean. You're always going to tread water, but the waves will pass. But you will always be swimming. You'll always be swimming. However, the pain, the anxiety, the frustration, whatever that particular tidal wave is that you have to deal with is going to pass. Now, some people push back and say, well, Yeah, but then I'm going to get used to like, oh my God, another tidal wave is going to come. But then I go like, yeah, but look what happened. You learned how to ride the last one. So you're going to get over the next one. And then the next one after that and onward. But I mean, immediately after, like I moved away, I finished high school in an alternative school because I didn't want to be in a regular classroom. So I got on an accelerated track to get to college sooner. You know, all that. We just told all those stories. (laughs) And we talk now, you know, we talk on the phone. There was a period where we didn't speak. There was like a four or five year. I mean, like basically the entire time that I was at university, we didn't, we didn't talk. I feel like that's kind of typical though, like during those years. Possibly, but I did invite him to my graduation, but apparently at that time he was still dealing with a lot of issues. He didn't come. So again, that was me. That was my first open the door, let him back in. And that didn't work. There were many things like that with my parents where I gave them the opportunity. They let me down again. And then I realized, you know what? they're always going to let me down or I have to come to some kind of understanding where I, if I want them in my life, I have to put the energy into it because it's only going to be reciprocated like on a certain level. Honestly, you're like, Oh yeah. Part of my show is you can ask my dad a question. Yeah. What you got? Well, I I thought this was pretty good, but I did wrestle with this because um, I wrestled with it because I've learned I can't ask my parents questions because they are still seeking answers to the same questions. Mm. even though they're much older than me they never got the answers themselves and so honestly sometimes i answer questions for them right or we find the answers together which is that's it has its own merits too better call johnny spoiler (laughs) 
But I wanted to ask if if there if you consider fatherhood a mystery, what song will shed some light on the mystery of fatherhood? You know what song just came to mind for me? And it's something actually that my dad's father, it was one of his favorite songs. And it mm-hmm. kind of goes with the whole lunar eclipse thing, but fly me to the moon. Wow. That was his favorite song. I don't know. I wonder what my dad will say though. That's a really beautiful question. I love that. Can I get you to do like a little intro, whether it's your intro to your show or you on my show? What do you want me, me to do? Give me a little of that little voiceover voice. Hey, it's better call daddy. Johnny's invited to the party. You're going to have a lot of questions after this one. Get ready. Grab a box of tissues and crack open a cold one. It's all over the place. It's a bit wild. Disclaimer. Strap in. You can find my show at bwpodcast.com. You can listen to it wherever you find your podcast. But my preference is you go to my site. That way you can talk to me. Or, you know, I'm on Instagram. You can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Now. Let's switch it over to Grandpa. You know, it's funny. He's using the name Johnny the Spoiler, (laughs) where (laughs) I like to call him Johnny the Refresher, (laughs) because he doesn't want to be in a box or be a spoiled piece of fruit. He wants to be able to reach out, be able to express himself, but to be able to express himself creatively and to be able to take his imagination as far as it will go. And I just love that part of it. And isn't it something also that during a very tough period that he went to the college to really learn the mechanics of filmmaking, of making movies, and his own creative spirit as just a small child with his grandfather and experiences that along with his friends in school led him to this great opportunity to go to school and college He gets there and he finds out that you can't really learn to be creative in college necessarily. It's still something that has to be self-driven and where you have to have the passion for it and you have to have the imagination for it. And a lot of these people that you are learning from in college, and it doesn't really matter what the subject is, is that you're only going to learn certain fundamentals. You're only going to learn certain structure of how to proceed. Really what you learn in school is you learn how to learn. And it's up to you after you get out of school to apply those skills in developing yourself further. That when you get your college degree, it's not necessarily a tool of stardom, only a tool to give you a beginning. And it's up to you to do the rest, where hopefully you have enough training to be able to express yourself better when you get out of school. I thought it was interesting that he said he feels like everything that he's done up until this point has really set him up for the podcasting. Like he feels like the podcasting is his calling. Well, he has a chance to be himself as in your podcast. It gives you a chance to take all the experiences that you have and all of the hands-on work that you've done for others as he's done for others and all the near misses of certain opportunities that you both have had. It's given you a chance to say, hey, I've learned enough hands-on where I could really take all those experiences and do something for myself, especially because of the COVID. It gave you an opportunity to branch out and reach out and be able to be creative on your own. And there's no place that you can learn that or experience that unless you take the leap and jump in there. I liked his example where you can jump in the ocean and some big waves 
are ready to drown you. As you know, your father had that experience. But the fact is, is that you can drown, you can give up. It's easy to do every day. But the fact is, is that there's a good chance also that the big storm will pass and that if you survive it, it'll make you stronger and you learn how to deal with difficulties better as life goes on. It's not just, uh, as you know, you know, the Grandpa Abe line. Uh, life's a bowl full of cherries, but you still got to watch out for the piss on every one that you eat because you could choke to death if you swallow that pit wrong. Life is just a fantastic opportunity to take advantage of because we're only here a short time. And yet we're all so vulnerable at all times. And it's easy to get into a depression also where uh, you just can't seem to bottom out. And some people just can't seem to get back up. And they just think and think and think and think, think until they're in oblivion and they're, they're gone. And others fall so far and find a new beginning at some point off the bottom and work their way back up bigger and stronger than ever. Fortunately, most of us in life have to experience the highs and the lows. And that's part of, as you know, we've discussed before also, that's part of God's willpower of giving you freedom of choice so that you understand the entire spectrum of it. We can't make good and better choices unless you know and have experienced also the bad choices and the mistakes. That's how you have a chance to get it right. And you asked me an interesting question. Why do we have to be put through this test or this challenge? Why can't we just have it easy? Why can't we just be saved? And people just give us an idea of what to do where we don't have a chance to fail. But that's what makes us human. That's what gives us the value of being a human being. He also wants you to uh, pick a song that sheds light on the mystery of fatherhood. Wow. Now, I, I used to like that song, Pashas. I think it goes something like that. Pashas, I'm depending on you, son. You know, I tried to do my best. It's up to you to do the rest. And isn't that what life is about also? It's trying very hard to give an example to your children and hope that they can do better. And unfortunately, sometimes they improve on some of the good things that you set an example at. And sometimes they have to improve the fault of the parent. And I like what Johnny said also, is that if I want to have a relationship with someone like my parents that have had certain issues of communications with me my whole life, I have to lower the bar so that I'm not disappointed and where I give them an opportunity to make some type of headway with me. And I might have to even reach out and help write the script for them so that they can even relate the right questions to ask, even be able to try to formulate a better answer because they don't know any better. I found that to be really interesting. It's where the youth sometimes has to tell the adults how to do a better job, even in the communication. I could relate to that too. There's a lot of, a lot of really great lessons in this episode. We're only touching on a few of them. I even like the one that he had a crush on a, a girl in high school and for four or five years, and obviously it didn't work out. And he decided to write a play or a scene for a movie where that's where your imagination can change the outcome. That is, is that instead of getting down on it, he wrote something down where he gets a better conclusion, where he gets a better answer. He, he changes the ending. He changes the storyline. He also found out that 
you don't have to be the star football player to go out with the cheerleaders. Sometimes you don't have to be the most physical man to get the prettiest girl or the nicest girl. Sometimes having someone with extra character and passion and somebody that's funny and someone who doesn't take everything so seriously and is able to communicate and, and laugh and get on the stage and show that they're unaffected by the pressures of it. Guess what? That shows just as much strength, if not more strength, than picking up weights or hitting somebody on a football field. What do you think of that? I agree. The nice part of the Better Call Daddy show and his show is that he has a chance to express himself and have other people express themselves about things that are happening and make it real and make it where people can participate unabridged. And when certain content is also being challenged in a podcast, when you're monetizing your podcast, guess what? Now there's rules. And what did he say? He doesn't really like rules. He wants to use good common sense and he wants to be able to express himself without being hindered. And when you're being hindered, does that interrupt your creative flow? For a lot of people, it does. It does for me. And it does for him. And it does for most of us. Still, we have to understand that has said, Johnny has said something also very important. Can't worry about the numbers. Can't worry about how much money your podcast is going to make in the beginning. Can't also sacrifice who you are to make someone else happy. Put your show on. You have to have the passion and you have to have top quality content and you have to have something that's interesting and something that's real or sum it all up. You have to have value and you have value and you have a little comedy in there and you have a little bit of where we don't take ourselves so seriously and we leave ourselves with an avenue to express ourselves, guess what? Then you really have something here, so to say. You know, when his father attempted to end it all, there's a lot of people that suffer from depression. And it's like I said, it's like looking at, a, at the top of a hill or a mountain that you just don't feel like you can climb, you know? The truth of the matter is, is that all of these issues and problems in life or whatever tidal wave is hitting you, it does pass. It's not going to be forever, but it seems like forever at that moment. And the only way to really overcome it is to get help, is to get people that know what you're going through to help you through it. And that's why mentorship and encouragement of your children, of the people around you, is part of a necessity to life as well. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Better Call Daddy.